This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The Slate Political Gab Fest is brought to you by stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get up to $55 in free postage when you visit stamps.com and use the promo code GABFEST. By GoToMeeting with HD Faces, start hosting your own face-to-face meetings today by signing up for your free 30-day trial of GoToMeeting. Visit gotomeeting.com, click the Try It Free button, and use the promo code GABFEST. And by the University of California, creating opportunity through knowledge. That's the power of public. Learn more at universityofcalifornia.edu. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for May 16th, 2014, the Google will never, ever, ever, ever forget you edition. I'm David Plotz, the editor of Slate. This week... Will disastrous news about the melting of the West Antarctic ice sheet finally convince climate change skeptics? Of course it won't. But Marco Rubio isn't worried because Florida does not have any coastline to protect in case of huge ocean rises. Then Jill Abramson is unceremoniously and mysteriously fired as the editor of the New York Times. Is this sexism? And then a European court rules that Europeans can compel Google to purge certain embarrassing information from its search results. Is this a triumph for privacy or a blow to free speech or perhaps both? I am joined in Slate DC, very soon to be incredibly hot studio. This, our studio is perhaps evidence of climate change, John, by John Dickerson, Slate's chief political correspondent. Hello, John. It is. The, the climate in here is definitely affected by human behavior. That is true. It is that we do. We are causing climate change. Breathing. Within yeah. here. Uh, so, you know, just a uh, is it anthropogenic? Well, anyway, go we'll ahead. We'll talk about we'll right. talk about what that is in a second. Uh, then in New Haven, where she herself is melting polar ice caps just by standing in a studio, and uh, her carbon dioxide emissions are causing terrible things to happen to the Yale campus. Emily Bazelon, hello. <laughs> hello. I didn't know where I was going with that sentence. Didn't it? Didn't really work out. Really, I would never have guessed. <laughs> so, I want to again urge you, listeners, to consider becoming a member of Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our new, wonderful membership offering. It gets you all sorts of perks and privileges on Slate itself, like no pagination, but particularly lots of great GabFest extras. We have our endorsement omatic where we list all the things that we've endorsed over the past several years and everything that was uh, in, in the endorsements on the Culture Fest and Hang Up and Listen. We are doing um, ad-free podcasts. We're giving discounts to our live podcasts. And, of course, we're doing special segments every week for Slate Plus members. And this week, we're going to do a question about who was the political figure who shaped our lives? Who's the person who who caused us to become interested in politics? Uh, did you know we were going to talk about that? John? No, I didn't. Yeah, I was like, hey, that's that. a good question. Somebody yeah. should talk about that. Yeah, we will. So you can subscribe, become a member of Slate Plus by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus, or just email me directly, david.plots at slate.com. 
Scientists announced this week that the West Antarctic ice sheet is inevitably melting, a process that will, over the next couple of centuries, take billions and billions and billions of gallons of landbound ice and dump it into the ocean, liquid water, causing a sea level rise globally. Then I think they said it was about four feet. We'll hear more about that in a second, which is enough to cause enormous damage to coastal communities and incomprehensible changes to climate, although we'll try to comprehend them in a minute. There are also fears about the much, much larger ice sheet in the east of that continent whose melting would cause even larger sea level hikes, although that process is expected to take a much longer time. But we'll hear more about that again in a second. The culprit for the melting is, of course, climate change. And the scientists involved say there is at this point really nothing we can do to stop this melting and perhaps little we can do to stop the temperature changes that are causing uh, it to happen. We are joined today by Phil Plate, who's the author of Slate's Bad Astronomy blog, one of the most vivid writers on climate change. Phil is going to give us uh, a primer on how to think about this, and we'll, we'll talk about why certain Americans still are so skeptical of it. So, Phil, tell us a little bit more about what this announcement is, why it's significant. Sure. What's going on is that uh, Antarctica is a continent. It is a large landmass that is covered with ice, and in some places this ice is several miles thick. Now, we've known that on the West Antarctica area, uh, the ice there is melting. It's been melting quite a bit over the past few decades. In fact, uh, up until now, uh, we've even known that it is melting at a rate of roughly, now get this, a hundred billion tons per year. That is billion with a B and uh, uh, tons with a, with a T. So that's a, that's a huge amount of ice that's melting, and Antarctica is very large. It's got a lot to, uh, to dump out there. What is new is that uh, a couple of studies have actually been able to model how quickly they are melting, and another study has shown that there's really nothing that's going to stop it. For example, when these, these glaciers, they're ice, they're sitting on land, and they flow over time into the water. And as they flow into the water, they float, ice floats. And it forms a, a tongue of sorts that floats on the water. Well, a while ago, there was an underground or an underwater ridge that was supporting one of these tongues of ice. And uh, when that finally let go, it, it, it started melting even faster. But the, the point there is that that ridge sort of slowed the melting of that tongue of ice. Well, what the, uh, what the scientists have found is that there's nothing under this ice that can now stop it from melting. When they, when they map out the, the topography of the land underneath that ice, there are no ridges, there's no hills, there's no dams of, of dirt that is going to stop this thing. And now with uh, the world warming up, uh, basically, this glacier, this, this huge uh, West Antarctic area, is going to melt uh, catastrophically, basically. It's going to take 200 years, which is a long time. But uh, the inevitability of it is the part that's actually a little bit terrifying. Phil, the so, year 200 feels like, for a lot of people, is going to feel like, oh, well, that's such a long way away. Um, those are my great-great-great-grandchildren, not my great-grandchildren. Who cares? Yeah, all right. Screw them, right? right? Screw humanity. Who needs them? So... Uh, I guess the question is, um, will this be a steady line? Will it be an exponential feeling of the effects? Will, will we start to feel effects more noticeably in 20, 30 years that are connected with this 200-year? Or will it just be like a steady increase that will actually be linear over 200 years? Well, that's hard to say. Uh, basically, you're seeing a certain amount of meltwater coming off of these glaciers now. If you try to project that into the future, what will happen is at some point – 
it will become uh, stronger and stronger. And it basically reaches, and I hate to use this phrase, but it's apt, it reaches a tipping point where suddenly, uh, over the course of maybe years or decades, a couple of decades, uh, you lose a catastrophic amount of ice from, from the glacier. So right now, it's essentially steady. Uh, a big question is, will it increase? Don't know. Will it, uh, will it take 200 years or 500 years? Don't know. The scientists said that uh, this catastrophe, what they call a collapse, and I'll get back to that in a sec, uh, that could happen 200 years from now or 900 years from now. They're not sure. They can only give a range. But statistically speaking, it's more likely to happen sooner rather than later. And, yeah, 200 years seems like a long time, but this is inevitable, right? 200 years ago, we started building our cities on rivers and on the coastline and all that kind of thing. If we had known that the ocean levels would rise four feet and swamp these cities, would we have built them there? Uh, but this is a serious problem. Uh, it's, it's just a, it's not so much an immediate threat as it is to me another voice rising about climate change and how devastating this is to the planet. So, Phil, what about that Greenland ice? Is that in as much danger as the West Antarctic ice? Um, I think you would have to talk to an expert to answer that question. Uh, as but that's accurately why we have you here. Want. But uh, as a talking head who writes about this and reads a lot about it, um, you know, they're, they're both way up there. Up until, up until this study, basically, Greenland was what everybody was eyeballing as, as the biggest threat. You know, Greenland has a huge amount of ice. It is melting as well, uh, and it turns out a lot of that is due to climate change. There was a new study released this week saying, in fact, and, and this has been uh, uh, thought about for a while, uh, the ice there is getting darker due to forest fires in North America. The wind is blowing the soot over to Greenland, making the ice darker. It absorbs more sunlight, which warms it up, which melts it faster. And again, that ties back to climate change, because climate change is big, giving us bigger droughts, longer summers, higher winds, and that is causing more fires. So this is all a big, vicious cycle. Yay. So the other week on before we got this dismal news, there was a huge map of the United States showing the warming that's already happening. That felt very immediate to me. And I looked at that and the rising temperatures and I thought, I mean, we're all experiencing this in some ways in different parts of the country, the sense of extreme weather. And there was a special emphasis on torrential rains and the way that is going to put other parts of our infrastructure um, and coastal cities in jeopardy. How long can Republican politicians like Marco Rubio really ignore all of this when there are all these cities and state governments and businesses that are already adjusting to it? It's like we're doing the adjusting, even though we haven't reckoned with the causes and the reality. Yeah, it's, it's a bizarre lapse of uh, the concept of reality, which is becoming a uh, party plank in the GOP, it seems. Uh, I don't. I don't know when they'll ever admit it. It may be when they're when they're going back to their home states and drowning. Uh, you know, Florida, for example, is a, a really, really, really uh, uh, vulnerable to climate change and sea level rise because so much of it is lowlands and on the coast. And they have aquifers they depend on, which can be flooded with seawater. Uh, this is a very, very serious problem. Uh, James Inhofe, a senator from Oklahoma, who has called climate change the, you know, the man-made climate change, the largest hoax ever perpetrated, uh, he, he just basically dissed a bunch of flippin' military ex-generals who came out with a, with a study that said, yeah, climate change is a, is a big security threat, and we need to take this seriously. And he basically called them crackpots. 
and said he, he wished he was back in the Cold War days when, when people were, were more canny about reality. And it's like, really? Really? And it, it's, it's mind-boggling. We are in the middle of the effects of global warming right now. It's, it's kind of like having a systemic illness. You have the flu, and you, you know, your stomach's upset, you might be throwing up, you might be weak, and you, you don't know which one of these things might be directly due to the flu or something you ate or whatever. But you know what? The flu is affecting your entire body. It's affecting everything. That's what global warming is doing. It's what climate change is doing. It's affecting everything on our planet. And it's hard to know exactly, did this storm happen? Was that torrential rain because of climate change? We don't know, but we're getting more of these things. We're getting, and not just, not just more, if it were a direct, you know, we're getting more forest fires because of climate change, that would make it a lot more obvious. But in fact, the effects are more subtle. It's not that we're getting more rain. It's that we're getting longer periods of drought and then heavier rains afterwards. Things like that, they're sort of second-order effects. They're more subtle. John, I want to ask you about the politics of this, because we had Marco Rubio give this remarkable speech this week where he denied the idea that climate change was man-made and was, I think, perhaps even ambiguous about whether it was happening at all. Not a single one of the leading presidential candidates, except possibly Chris Christie, acknowledges man-made climate change, on the, in the GOP, I should say. Um, and it doesn't seem as though more information about this, it doesn't seem that more things happening has any effect on changing that opinion. <clears throat> well, so do you see this having any movement as a political issue? I think there are three parts of the answer to that. One is that what Rubio said is um, a little bit more complex than than what you than the way you outlined it. So he basically created a straw man, which is he said um, that he doesn't believe uh, that all climate change is solely created by man-made uh, or by human behavior, and that these storms are all the result of man of, of human behavior. And as we heard Phil just say, that's nobody's saying that. Nobody's saying that this storm was created by. Uh, human behavior. It's a combination of things. Some storms are the result of uh, different factors. But basically, Rubio, what Rubio did was take the kind of um, the most clownish interpretation of what sort of he thinks the left is offering and then say, I don't believe in that. So he said, um, right, uh, let's John, see. So, you're like parsing this. I'm sorry. I got to interrupt. It's no, no, but this is, is, that this G- is really no, important to the, understanding the where their positions are. The is right. entirely aligned against this as an the issue. The point is the reason you have to know where everybody – what people are saying is if you come at him and you say you're denying that, that climate change exists, as you just said, he would say, no, I'm not because he's not. So you got to know what they're doing. Now, there are some people – so Ted Cruz, for example, denies that basically – there's any human contribution. So he'll say for the last 15 years, there hasn't been any increase in temperature and that this is just, and and Rand Paul says a version of the same, which is climate has gone up and down over time. That's a totally different category than somebody like Rubio who says, yes, man contributes to it, but it doesn't contribute as much as these scientists say. And I don't want to ruin the economy by doing all these insane things. It's all throwing the legislators to prevent doing anything. I, uh, Plus, I don't think I anyone think, noticed any of those nuances. It just Well, just like because people are not paying attention is not... Yeah, but I mean, just because people are not paying attention doesn't mean that John, you should try to. And then I think the right then the it. third... Then I think that you have your third category, which is uh, Chris Christie and... Jeb Bush, Jeb Bush sort of saying, well, I think it exists, but it's not overwhelmingly, it's not overwhelmingly that human behavior is determining this. So the point of this is that you're, you've got 
this competition will take place maybe among these players, except that none of them want to have a competition of ideas on this. And so uh, so it won't be that much of a conversation in the sorting out process of the uh, of the um, of the Republican presidential candidates. So the and then this, the second thing is that the reason that they don't feel like they have to sort it out in their primaries is because if you look at both Gallup and Pew, uh, it keeps worries about the environment and climate change are i think on in Gallup it was 15 out of 15 in terms of the things that people care about so you're not going to you're not going to see many people talking about stuff that people that they don't feel like the the country has a real uh, worry about and even governor christie who should care because of hurricane sandy has been ducking this and not talking about this although he he did say as you as you pointed out at one point in his career that if 90% of scientists believe in this then you know you should listen to the yeah, experts and it's also not 90 so phil here's a question for you given how little success people like you who are speaking out forcefully about climate change are having in convincing a most significant constituency of the American public and American political system to change their minds about this. What is the strategy to, that you should pursue that will succeed in changing their mind insofar as information doesn't seem to be it? Is there a way that ridicule or humor or you know, dancing girls could change the way the American right thinks about this issue? Or is it a completely lost cause? Well, I wish there were a silver bullet. Um, I haven't found one. If I had, I'd be using it, and I would be using it on a number of issues, not just climate change. You're never going to convince somebody like Inhofe or, or Rubio or any of these folks that they're wrong. And, and let me throw in that John Huntsman is, is a moderate Republican who completely acknowledges everything that is correct about climate change, that we're causing it, and that it's a catastrophe, and we need to be talking about it. And he's... he's He's chewing over the idea of, of a run for president again, but I think he got like 1% of the vote in the Republican primary a couple of years ago, so it doesn't seem like he has much of a chance. Um, you know, facts don't speak for themselves. This is something that scientists always like to say. Well, the facts speak for themselves. Like, well, no, that's completely not true. If that were true, we wouldn't be having any discussion about creationism in this country or climate change or vaccine denial or anything like that. Uh, I don't... I, I wish I did know what it was. There... The Republican uh, consolidation with the uh, religious right back in the uh, back in the eighties is is really uh, what started this whole thing. And then, of course, the oil industry coming in with these southern states in Oklahoma and Texas. You know, Joe Barton from Texas, who has received a huge amount of money from the oil industry, and he's he's the one who apologized to the to the guy from BP for for having our Gulf of Mexico get in the way of all their oil a couple of years back. Um, one thing that's interesting. Catherine Cahoe is an evangelical Christian climate scientist, and she's been talking to religious groups about this. And that, to me, might be an interesting inroad. If you can separate out the, uh, the religious right from the right, from the GOP, then there might be a way of wedging into this a little glimpse of reality. Um, it, it seems to happen sometimes uh, in creationism when you, when you talk about uh, religious folks who aren't necessarily creationists. Thank you you can actually great. get in there and do that. I'm hoping that, that, that she's very vocal and she might be able to get out there and do this as well. The, the challenge, though, of course, with this is not just a kind of convincing somebody at a dinner table argument. You then have to get them to buy on and sign on to legislation. And that's the problem 
particularly when we look at, say, evangelicals who've tried to push Republicans to take and embrace some kind of comprehensive immigration reform, they've gotten nowhere. And this has an even more direct economic uh, relationship with a lot of these members and uh, the businesses that give money and the and the PACs that support these members. Uh, so it, you're, it's an even steeper hill to climb for evangelicals or crunchy cons or anybody who might believe in the human uh, contribution to climate change and try to convince some kind of lawmaker. Phil Plate is the author of Slate's Bad Astronomy blog. Phil, thank you for joining us on the GabFest. Come back, talk about vaccines or climate change. We should talk about this more. Thanks for joining or, us. Or, you know, real science would be awesome too. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, David. Bye-bye. The GabFest today is brought to you by the University of California. The University of California enrolls more low-income students, 72,000 and growing, than any other top-ranked research university in the country creating opportunity through knowledge. That's the power of public. Learn more at universityofcalifornia.edu. And now for today's breakthrough. You guys are going to love this. This is awesome. A few years ago, Dr. Keltner and Paul Piff, who are psychologists at UC Berkeley, noticed that people driving expensive cars, such as, say, BMWs, were more likely to ignore the rules of the road than drivers of less expensive vehicles. When they put their observations to the test in 2012, Keltner and Piff came to some unsettling conclusions. As people climb the social ladder, their compassion for others declines. In fact, research has repeatedly demonstrated that high earners behave less ethically than low earners. They're more likely to make morally dubious decisions to lie and to cheat. All these traits, it appeared, were created in part by more favorable attitudes toward greed. To read this story and uncover more groundbreaking innovations by the University of California, visit Slate.com slash breakthroughs. I had such a plots experience yesterday with a guy in a BMW. I was stopped at a stoplight. He went around to my right and tried to burn past me, you know, in the parking lane to get in front of me. And my crappy little 95 Honda, I refused to let him do it, nice. mostly just for you. Nice. Uh, this is, when, I, when I did my story about BMWs and, and bicyclists, I, a lot of people sent me, sent me this research and said, look, there is actual proof that, that, uh, that people driving these cars may be um, morally compromised, morally suspect. Except for my Which brother. Which was just what you wanted to hear. It was just research that confirmed all that I wanted to hear. On Wednesday, Jill Abramson was fired suddenly and mysteriously as the executive editor of the New York Times. Abramson, who was the first woman to edit the Times, had run the paper for only about two years. She is being replaced by her number two, Dean Bacay, who is now the first African-American to run the Times editorially. The paper is growing. It's profitable. It's seen as widely successful on the Internet. It's seen as widely successful with its new digital uh, digital subscriptions. It has won a lot of Pulitzers under uh, Abramson. The journalism seemed Excellent. So her departure is strange. There are rumors, there are insinuations, hints, allegations. Some reporting says that Abramson's dissatisfaction with her pay was the source of the firing. Others say it was her conflict with the Times' new business boss, Mark Thompson. Others say it was the result of Abramson's plan to bring in a second deputy editor without seeking Bacay's approval. Others see basic sexism on the part of Thompson and Times owner Arthur Salzberger. So we're a little bit in the dark. We don't have all the facts here, but there's been a lot of really interesting writing about Abramson, the Times, her firing. So let's talk about Emily. What is the most persuasive theory you've heard about this so far? I think the most persuasive theory is the some combination of the management issues that was going on. And to speculate for a minute, you know, if uh, Abramson was trying to hire another editor at Becky's level and Becky didn't want that to happen. You can imagine that Arthur Sulzberger felt like he was choosing between the two of them. And 
you know, I do think there were some real unrest at the times and and mixed feelings about Jill Abramson's tenure. On the other hand, I have to say this whole thing makes me so heartsick. I mean, it is bad for women writ large and also Jill Abramson is an amazing, hard-charging female journalist and someone who's been very good to me personally. And so the idea that someone with all of her skills and talent didn't succeed or was perceived at not succeeding in this role, for me, it's pretty heartbreaking. Not that it can't be true, but it can be true and really sad at the same time. Do you think, Emily, and I guess John, too, that that it is in fact true that there are forms of behavior that women – in leadership cannot exhibit that men can. Forms of brusqueness and rudeness and and bullying people over, which apparently Abramson does some, as many people do, uh, that that are just unacceptable because the person doing it is a woman. Yeah, I do pretty much think that. I mean, you stated it very baldly. I guess I would shade it a little more to say that it is much harder to pull off a certain kind of brusque, abrasive management style. Um, You know, there's been a lot of bridling about some of the words used to describe Jill, but bitchy and pushy and confrontational. We were arguing a few weeks ago about the word emotional being used to describe Dianne Feinstein. And I'm sympathetic to the idea that these words are kind of gender little warning bells that go off. On the other hand, there has to be some way to talk about problems that women have with their management styles that are gender inflected but are still troublesome for the people who are trying to work with them or work for them. And I mean, Jill had hired someone as like a management consultant. So obviously there was some self-awareness that there were things that she needed to work on here. This has always been one of the curiosities for me about journalism. Uh, and that is that in in a lot of organizations uh, and people who are elevated to management positions are usually the people who were great journalists. And the two tasks don't necessarily have anything to do with each other. In fact, some investigative reporters of which, you know, Jill Abramson was a, was a, a an investigative reporter, they operate totally alone. They don't operate in any situation. Now, that isn't to say that they can't go on to be managers, and she was manager of the Washington Bureau, so she clearly had uh, dealt with people working under her in a certain way that when you're bureau chief, you sort of have that power, but then also sort of don't. Uh, And it's just always been a curious thing for me about journalism and the way it's practiced at a lot of places. Um, and so management – this is not a news story. There are at least at least in time at, – at time where I worked, which is more closer to the New York Times than, than here, uh, there were lots and lots of stories about people who were just like this. They were, they were the male version and this goes back to your point, Emily, is what um, – uh, in terms of uh, how, how do you have a conversation about the kinds of behaviors that, that, were, that were bad in male bosses – that a female is exhibiting in exactly the same way, but you don't want to be able, you don't want to talk about them in a way that seems like you're just loading up a lot of stereotypes on them. Um, because, it, I mean, there's got to be a way to, as we, and this goes back to the Diane Feinstein conversation too, there's got to be a way to talk about uh, a, an executive editor who's a woman who happens also to be, um, you know, a bad manager and exhibiting all those kind of bullying skills. I'm not saying in this particular case, I'm just saying in general. Right. I mean, Salzburg, one of the things Salzberger said is, oh, when we get women in leadership, women are going to get fired. And that's a true enough statement. It just is a little bit 
suspect when the two prominent people you've hired are the two women you have at the highest rank, Janet Robinson, who was who was uh, the predecessor of Mark Thompson as the I guess the COO of the of the Times, and now Jill Abramson, and that they're <laughs> cashiered really quickly. So so the, the 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 theory is good, but the practice is alarming. <laughs> I love this. Well, and also Salzburg. if you have a really small number of women or any particular group in power, then each one stands for a much greater share of the whole. And that's why I think there's such a sense of deflation today among female journalists. It's partly personal about Jill, because I think a lot of people are genuinely super impressed by her and fond of her. But I think there's also just this sense of shit. If she failed at this, if the first you know, New York Times female editor is, is perceived as a failure, and this was such a kind of humiliating firing, but you know then what, though? what does that mean for the next person's chances? Yeah, I wonder if failure really is going to fit in, like, because the way this is trending and the way this is being kind of reported out in the story here is that, uh, you know, I mean, was she really like an objective failure or was it the times that was a failure? Right. So, like, she wasn't. I, I mean, I think the story that's coming out of this is she may end up being more kind of glorified. And risen and and held up higher than than maybe the way you're putting it. Well, that would be maybe you're right. Maybe I'm having kind of dark cast on it because I just have that feeling that you feel when someone you're rooting for gets pulled down. Maybe you're right. I think John is right. I do think that that unlike say the Howell Rains firing, which happened a decade ago, where the, the another Times editor who was cashiered very suddenly and and humiliatingly. But that uh, had a clear cause. That that had a clear cause, and that and Reigns's reputation never really recovered, and and he it was seen as the right thing to do. I strongly doubt, even when all the facts of this come out, that people are going to think, "Oh, Arthur Salzberger, what a wise man." I think people are going <laughs> to people are going to think, "Gosh, he has taken this woman of extraordinary talent and ambition, uh, with who'd made enormous changes, mostly to the good in this newspaper, and for pretty." trivial reasons got rid of her and reasons that are not going to reflect well on him in the future. As good an editor as Beckay may turn out to be. Beckay may turn out to be great. Everyone seems to like him. He seems to be a lovely man. But but it's also it's there's something so funny about the Times, which is a place filled with people who are pardon my French for a minute, people who are assholes. Like it's a place of people who are assholes, pushy, obnoxious, brusque. Like the, there's nothing less pleasant than running into a Times reporter who's working on the same story as you, and as, as I'm sure you know. I mean, Emily, that isn't always true. It's not always <laughs> true, but there's a definite type of the jerk Times reporter, and, and and they are they are really full of themselves, really pushy, really arrogant, and they've uh, deserved it in a lot of cases. They really have. They've uh, earned it, and and Jill is represents that for all the good reasons. And it's just a it's so weird and hypocritical for them to get rid of somebody who has that kind of brash, aggressive, confrontational, go get it style when that's really what the papers defined by. I uh, well, I don't really think the paper that's true. I mean, I think what you just described is a reality of hard-charging, big institution journalism. I don't identify it with the Times in particular. And Bill Keller, who was the editor before Jill, is like a super nice Almost guy. everyone I know who's a reporter at the Times I really like. And is there are a lot of really nice people. But you – there are enough of them – like there are enough of them out there in the world who are so difficult and so arrogant and so aggressive that they – But more that than like it. television journalism, which is full of yeah, incredibly no, no. 
No, not more than no ten. No way. No. Uh, I, no one. But I, I, I mean, I, David's point. If you, I would not sign on to his characterization of Times reporters. But I mean, but the fact is, it ain't beanbag, right? You know, journalism in general and high performing journalism. You're used to people. We all have dealt with these people. There are a lot of people who are highly performing, very good journalists. With who there's a big penalty to having them around. I mean, there's just a tax, right? They're they're socially awkward. They're kind of jerks. They step on their colleagues. But that's all like right. we that's, build that into the right. business. And right. we I kind of that, accept I it. I just want to say that I was saying that in a basically admiring way. I love the Times and it's the, the greatest journalism produced in the world as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and so given the fact that that tax is kind of built into the organization, why weren't they willing to pay it if they had some you know, qualms or quibbles? But well, that doesn't it was really make sense to me because if you see the person who's in a management role as exhibiting those qualities in a way that's destructive and undermining for other people, I mean, if that's what Sulzberger thought was going on, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. This Imagine that he's not just being self-serving and petty and vengeful and that he was actually really hearing – broader discontent, then it seems to me like you can value all those hard-charging qualities in a reporter and still think that the person who is at the top, who has to motivate everyone, uh, has the wrong combination. You do. That's absolutely true. And I think that it's true that he also had the sense that Baquet, who I think clearly is a personal favorite of his and perhaps the person he wanted in the job before Jill to begin with, was might be about to leave. And he was worried about that. And he wanted to fix that. And, And he... But I'm not sure that excuses the kind of fast, humiliating, well, that's the th- vicious form yeah, of doesn't. cashiering that they went through. Well, that's that also just as a company that has a public profile was ham-handed. I mean, so, right, he's got to run a business. He decides that for the purposes of and, – and a business that's in, you know, some peril. So he's got to move on. It's not working out with this executive editor. Got to get a new one. Let's move on. But if you're going to make that decision, and let's say you made it for all the right reasons, then you've then the final step is managing this last piece. And maybe she's difficult about it, but you, it seems to me you have to find a way to solve that because if you don't, you have what's happening now, which is you're, you're losing news cycles by the day. You've deflated your staff. Uh, you've got – I mean the right is having a f- – a field day with the idea, uh, and Ken Oletta was pretty clear about this, that this notion of pay, uh, that that that, uh, that basically Bill Keller was paid more uh, than Jill Abramson, that that, while it was a part of the tension, it was a contributing factor and not the sole reason uh, for, this, um, uh, for this breakup. But a lot of people have just decided to kind of characterize it as it being the sole reason, which allows uh, conservatives who don't like the New York Times to really delight in the fact that here this liberal organ, as they see it, uh, is is kind of run afoul of, of pay equity. Can I ask one final question, particularly of you, Emily? So, so if we posit that certain forms of brusqueness and, and uh, aggression are very hard for women to carry off as managers and that they are penalized for them. If we say that, that, there's that there's something to that. Are there any examples of the converse? Are there any things that men get penalized for that women don't as managers? Are there things that men can't do that women can as managers? Hmm. I wonder if it's sometimes easier for women to play the kind of hand-on-your-shoulder sympathy card because they d- that 
is like a more natural maternal or sisterly role for them to be on. I mean, men can't be touchy in the same way. I think that's true. Like the pressure to leave your office door open when you're talking to an employee or particularly someone younger than you of the opposite sex is higher for men. Do I have to do that? Oh, my gosh. I don't know. I wasn't thinking of you in particular. I don't think so. I don't. I mean, I, I, I think if you made a regular habit of not doing it, it might uh, raise some concerns. Um, uh, what would what would she do next? What does? Where do you imagine Jill Abramson going next? I mean, she's such a kick-ass journalist and investigative reporter. She could write a book about something she's interested in. She could certainly go. She already teaches at Yale. She could, I hope, teach more. Um, or. I don't know. I mean, I guess, does she want to run another institution? Part of what's so sad about this is her tremendous loyalty to the New York Times. I mean, the detail that was making me really upset yesterday was the idea that she has a tattoo of the T in the Times script. That's just rough. And But maybe it also means that you're in a poor bargaining position in some sense, too. I don't know. Right. She could go run ProPublica or something like that. Anything that did that did strong investigative journalism, she'd be a great candidate either to do the journalism or to run it. Let's move on to our next sponsor, Stamps.com. Back in the days of black and white TVs and phones with wires, the only way for a business to avoid the post office was to lease a postage meter. Technology has changed dramatically since then, but those postage meters haven't, which is why it's lucky there's a better way to get your postage, which is Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can do a lot more than a postage meter for a lot less. You can get official U.S. postage for any letter or any package using your own computer and printer. There's no extra hardware to buy or lease. And unlike a meter, there are no long-term commitments. You will save up to 80% versus a meter. Plus, with Stamps.com, you can track packages, track spending, and more. So right now, use our promo code GABFEST, and you'll get a special offer of a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. For all the details of the special offer and to sign up today, go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's Stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. A European court this week upheld the idea that Google should be forced to purge certain kinds of embarrassing information from its records. The ruling stems from the right to be forgotten, a French and now European principle that you shouldn't carry the stigma of a past mistake for the rest of your life. Since the internet remembers everything... Many of us are constantly at risk of being exposed with a single Google search for our past sins, crimes, foibles, odd photographs. So what does this ruling say, Emily, and how broadly do we think it's going to apply? Is it just going to be in Europe? Is it going to, there are going to be lots of people who are now going to be demanding that Google purge itself? It is definitely just in Europe. This ruling is antithetical to how American courts think about the First Amendment. So it is not coming our way anytime soon. It is pretty interesting to me as a different way of balancing privacy rights and free expression. So the Spanish guy, his name is Castilla. I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. The guy who sued, the facts of this are that in 1998, there were a couple of auction notices um, of property of his being sold to pay off his debts, and they were published in a local newspaper. And when you Google his name, they still come up prominently in the search results. So there's this organization, this uh, government agency in Spain called the Spanish Data Protection Agency, and it, he asked that agency 
to make the newspaper take the articles down and to make Google stop linking to them. And the agency said yes, and then this got appealed to the European High Court, the European Court of Justice. And that court said the newspaper gets to leave the articles up, but Google should balance the equities here, balance the privacy rights versus the value of this information in a way that leads it to remove the links in the search results. And to me, the issue really is Google. It's like the first few pages of our Google results for our names, they feel like territory we should somehow be able to have some say over. And the idea that some indiscretion from 1998 is still the first thing people find out about you when they Google you, that does seem like a lot of harm in return for fairly little value here in terms of public information. On the other hand, you could say that if you were going to hire this guy, maybe you would want to know everything about him. Um, And certainly the idea that there's public government provided information about debt that has to come down or even just be not featured prominently on the internet, that would never fly in the United States. It's like your Wikipedia page, which which you're not allowed to edit. And yet, like, people secretly do make little trysts with Wikipedia editors and figure out ways to manipulate them. Wait, you have to have a tryst with them? Um, (laughs) So, Emily, is this a, a scope thing, too? So, for example, if the arrest records are in the, you know, Paducah Times and Examiner... In Paducah, that's fine. They're printed in the paper. It comes to the house. But then once the Paducah Times Examiner gets the you know great cousin of its executive editor to do them a web page and then it becomes available to Google and then it's all over the world, that's not. Is that one of the things that's at issue here is not just the kind of information but the breadth of its possible spreading? Yeah, absolutely. And if you think about it, and Eric Posner wrote a piece for Slate this week pointing this out, this is new. This is Internet era, right? Because a generation or two ago, whatever small but embarrassing thing got printed about you in the newspaper, people might or might not see it. And then the newspaper becomes fish wrap and it's basically gone unless someone really goes to look for it in the microfilm room. And that is just not true anymore. It's not how the Internet works. And so it's completely changed the whole privacy equation without any sense of our law adapting to that or catching up to it. It's as if the technology just completely changed the way the law actually plays out on the ground. And what this European court is doing is is saying, hey, we need to restrike the balance. Um, But if you think the Internet should be utterly unfettered forever, then you think they got it wrong. Well, which I keep waiting for David to say. Oh, I, I think the court got it terribly wrong, not because I don't think the, the things that you guys seek are admirable. Um, I mean, it would it is terrible to have the worst thing that you did be the thing that defines you. Um, but I also think, one, we don't want a world where you are able to control your image and just present to the world a glossy picture of yourself that doesn't bear any resemblance to actual true facts about you. That's the first thing. The second thing is... I just don't think it's possible to to shove this genie back into a bottle. It's out. The information exists. This is I've been making the same argument yeah, no, for the last I, three shows. Is that oh, the information is, the is there, which... and that and that let me finish. And that what has to happen is not an attempt to purge the information because I think that that is a lost cause fundamentally. Uh, but t- for us to develop different standards about how we judge people and to find it. To, to be able to not be uh, – to not feel that people are stigmatized for particular thing, things that they've done. I mean like so you're in bankruptcy court. So you were a felon. Uh, 
you know, so you, so you, um, you know, you were a porn star and now you're a public school teacher. That shouldn't destroy your life. And I think we just have to accept people for their flaws much more than we are, because I simply don't think we can roll back the data. Well, I don't see that shift taking place, but I also feel like you're not grappling with another part of the story, which is that this court didn't purge anything. They just asked Google to invest a little tiny bit of time and money in looking at the requests of people to change their search results. And it's a vague ruling. So the possibilities you're laying out are they're possible. But they basically said, look, this is super old information Wait, about someone who's a private yeah. citizen. It doesn't have – it has little value. So in this case, we think, yeah, Google, you should pay attention. No, but – They're not uh, saying that Emily, you get to completely Google's not the only – ser- there, there are lots of search engines. Google's the main one. It's not the only one. So so are you saying that they so – that Ask.com and Bing and Facebook, which, which often – carries information like that also has to to purge it and then it's the and then if if you're saying it just applies to a few people well once it applies who's to say whether it doesn't apply to everybody and then and then if it becomes a standard that everyone gets the right to do this everyone's going to want to do it because they're going to want to make sure if my neighbor if he's got his his drunk driving arrest purged i better make sure my drunk driving arrest is purged what about it seems to me that it's you can't say that it's just going to apply to a small number of people in a small number of circumstances I didn't say a small number of people. I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens in Europe because this will be a big experiment. It does apply to all the search engines. What I'm saying is that the way you would imagine sensible courts would interpret this decision would be to look at a particular case and say, okay, is this really old? Is this a private citizen? And does this information still have relevance? And so then you'd think the stuff that get, that starts to come down doesn't rate high in those categories and yet is really damaging to privacy and reputation. How I wonder how technologically easy it is for Google to bury. I mean, in other words, would it just put a little anchor on that piece of data and then it would just drop to the bottom of search results? And could that be done easily enough that this would be possible? In other words, if it's a well, huge... Well, did we find out about this when Rick Santorum's name was being so yeah. f- s- destroyed on the internet by Dan Savage and other gay rights activists? Google changed the algorithm and they pushed down all but that Also, there are these do not think, crawl. They can, they can choose not to crawl particular pages. And if yeah. they're ordered not to crawl particular pages, they won't. Right. But I guess, but my question is, you wouldn't, if you had a lot of people doing this, then it would be a real pain to do that. I mean, or maybe not. Maybe it's pretty easy. You just put... I don't think it's that big a pain. Yeah, okay. It all has to do with no, the, search the, but, engine optimization no, the, the, and how the, many I think, Emily, the, the, the work is probably not a pain. It's the the decision-making. Who is it? Does it? Is a judge going to have to step in every single time someone says, you know what, this happened 10 and a half years ago and I, you know, you know it was... It, it's pr- no, it's, I think it's, it's going to be administrative agencies like that's yeah, that's, data protection that's an agency. enormous amount of work. And it just doesn't seem to me like that it, it makes sense there. It's very hard. Know. It's very hard to put information back in a bottle. There was this great example on reputation.com uh, is a company that tries to improve people's online reputations when bad things happen. There's this terrible story of a girl who was killed in a car accident. There were gruesome photos yes, that story. were that were released. Of her Everywhere dead and body. And viral those. And they were of her death and they were incredibly painful to her and, family. Right. And they had been released wrongly by the California Highway Patrol. Yeah, the Highway Patrol had, had put them out there and totally unapproved. Some pri- right. some employee did it. Right. It and, so they, and so they asked – California Highway Patrol asked Google. They asked everyone to disappear it. You know what? Those photos, 
all the efforts that people have made, their photos are findable in one search. There's no problem. They're easy but to see, get. see, that, while it is a really haunting example, is not very typical because that's an example of something that went incredibly viral. I've talked a lot to women who have an ex, the sort of the classic revenge porn scenario where you have an ex-boyfriend who trashes your reputations by finding some porn site and putting up compromising photos of you with like some horrible captions. Those are not famous. They're not part of a campaign. But if someone Googles your name, they are what comes up. That is the kind of harm that I feel like this ruling should address in a targeted way. And we'll see if it actually does or not. I don't think it should. I think the only forms of information that don't escape are forms of information that have never been public, like your health records. Those still, we still don't have a situation where where Google knows your health records, can search it, and tell the world what your health status is. Because that there's yeah, never been a world by in which your that logic, information. David, if if someone on, in at a state agency released those things without authorization and they went up online, then you, they're lost forever. Yes, that is my logic. That's right. I believe that. Yeah, I just don't think these are turn backable. Do you guys think there's any chance that something like the right to be forgotten becomes an American standard? No, not this no. But I feel like there could be a. Um, I feel like you could maybe, but your example just says you can't. But maybe you, maybe if it were, a, I was going to say there would be groups like Reputation dot com, which in a non viral context could hire programmers to kind of find a way to get rid of this stuff or sufficiently, you know, I don't know how exactly you would do it, but that there would become a pri- an individual market way of doing this. That would help you because there's a huge market you can imagine of teenage and a lot of kids. You already see them doing it to their Facebook pages. Um, there's a lot. There's a there's a certain generation that's got a lot of stuff floating out there. They'd like to clean up before uh, moving into the working world or having kids themselves um, or, you know, just a lot of people with with teenage regrets. Uh, that, that So there is that market. I mean, one way of reframing this is why should you pay for Fighting, 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 paying Reputation.com to take down some libelous, slanderous, horrible thing about you. Why shouldn't Google have make some what, tiny wait, what, investment? Who in said that libelous, slanderous? That's slander- what this is about. Wait, no, no, no. no it's we're, not about libelous, slanderous. It's well, about this true, ruling true facts. Is not about libel and slander. But some of the things that people really care about taking down, down are certainly libel and slander, I, or they're invasion, those, invasive. Of those are different. Those yeah, are different, different things. Case. Libel and slander, things that are false about you, you should be able to take down. Things Wait, that I are you true. Just said any information that was already public. Things had to stand that are forever. Tr- th- no libel. I I didn't say. I well, I would carve out libel and libel is libel. Things that are false, defamatory about you. You have a a right. You have a civil. It's a civil tort. You're allowed to take it down. You're allowed to get damages for it. No, talking it's about, very hard to take things about, like that well, down. But, wait, but you're allowed to. It's You certainly you're allowed can to pursue try. Yes, You're you allowed can, to subpoena. I would, you're allowed to bring a lawsuit. I would, I would be glad to no... make that. I would be glad to make that easier. But we're talking the European case is about true statements, Emily. True yeah, facts. No, that's true. That is the part of the European case that is more problematic <laughs> even for me. Embarrassing but public records is different from embarrassing but libelous and slanderous. All right. The GAFS has another sponsor this week, which is Citrix GoToMeeting. Good communication is crucial for any business, especially when the people you work with aren't in the same office. You need to be able to stay connected and meet with coworkers and clients wherever they are, which is why millions of small business professionals rely on Citrix GoToMeeting, and you should too. It's a proven solution for meeting and collaborating online. With GoToMeeting, you can share the same screen to review documents and presentations in real time, which makes it easier for everyone to stay on the same page. And with built-in HD video conferencing, you just need a webcam to see each other face-to-face. 
It's just like being together in the same room. GoToMeeting allows you to present, demonstrate, and just simply meet from anywhere with any Mac, PC, tablet, or smartphone. See why millions choose GoToMeeting and start hosting your own face-to-face online meetings today. You can try it free for 30 days. If you visit GoToMeeting.com, click the Try It Free button, and use the promo code GABFEST. That's GoToMeeting.com, promo code GABFEST. Let's go on to cocktail chatter. John Dickerson, when you are de-sweating yourself after the show, what are you going to be totally. chattering chattering about to your shower mates? It's a swamp in here. Um, so the other day I heard for the 10 millionth time, and I don't think it was in the context of a, a global warming climate change conversation, but the old um, frog boiling metaphor, you know, you're all familiar with this, the frog, you put it in boiling water and the frog- <laughs> This room t- is just Yes, like exactly. Wait, this I room is the perfect- someone talking about this. In fact, Steve Metcalf was talking about this on the Culture Fest last Oh. So anyway, the old the metaphor is you put a, po- a frog in boiling water, it jumps out. But if you slowly increase the temperature of the water, the frog uh, doesn't notice it, and then it's dead. And it's occurred to me the first time that it's somebody seriously is going to happen in here. If that somebody, is definitely going to happen in this room. <laughs> it is getting warmer and warmer oh as god. I tell this tale. But <laughs> Bouvet is dead. Oh Andy, my god, Andy Bouvet died during uh, the show. Um, but it, the first thing that occurred to me is when this when somebody first used this metaphor, why didn't somebody else say why were you putting a frog in a pot of water so it occurs to me so it wasn't because they were trying to cook it because it it turns out that they were studying frogs and whether they how they responded to this water is because they were studying the nervous system of frogs which as you we all know frogs are very nervous which is why they're all all hopping around all the time so this one scientist so in the 19th century this is what they did and this one scientist um friedrich uh, goltz discovered This is the basis of the metaphor while doing experiments, uh, searching for the location of the soul, mind you, um, that if a frog had its brain removed, then it will remain in slowly heated water. But it seems to me that that's not a good (laughs) test because when you remove the brain, it really feels like you're really putting a thumb on the scale, right? I mean, like frogs that you nail into the pot are also not going to get out of the pot. What possible import could that have? As well as if you you bolt the lid shut on the pot, the frog will not get out. Anyway, so that, it figured to me, was not the, the basis of the metaphor. Later in the 19th century, there was an experiment that successfully was carried out where a sentient frog was... Um, it, it was able to be boiled in the water, and it was the trick was basically you have to do it super, super, super slowly. But then, in the 20th century, there have been additional experiments that have uh, debunked this idea, and they are based on the following two rather strong arguments. The first is that frogs don't sit still for experiments if you put them in cold, lukewarm, or any other kind of water. They pretty much just that always makes sense, right? Why would they not hop out of the cold? They water always too? hop out. That's what they do. That's why they're frogs. Then, But then finally, I think the most compelling uh, argument was from Professor Douglas, uh, Douglas Melton of the Harvard University Biology Department, who quite rightly pointed out that, quote, if you put a frog in boiling water, it won't jump out, it will die. This, it seems to me, is the eminently reasonable point to make about a frog. Uh, and it just – so this is now everything you need to know about that old metaphor, but the next time you hear it used, you'll be more uh, – You'll be more uh, well-educated and and be able to kind of take it in. You won't be able to appreciate what the person's trying to say. Right, because you'll be thinking about either the boiled dead frog or the brainless frog zombie that was was a goner. Emily, what's your chatter? Oh, my God. I can't get anywhere near that. I am sure that I have talked about the children's book Wonder on the show before. It's one of my favorite books, and lots and lots of schools have been reading it with kids because it's a great kind of 
empathy in Stelling Book. So the author of that book, whose pen name is R.J. Palaccio, she published an e-book this week that is a companion piece from the point of view of the bad kid, of the bully in Wonder, a boy named Julian. And it's really good. And I am so in favor of this because I am always trying to make us think about what it's like to be the bully and to try to understand that point of view. And that's exactly what this book is doing. I read it with my kids. We talked about it a lot. I recommend it. It's called The Julian Chapter. Oh, I understand what it's like to be the bully. <laughs> really? That's so shocking. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm if not If you were a, bully. a girl, you wouldn't be able to say that and keep your job. I'm just playing to type. My chatter, I went to Detroit this last weekend for the first time. I'd never been there. It was an amazing trip. I'm not really going to talk about it. But one thing I did when I was there is that I went to the Rouge factory. Ford has a factory which they make open for public tours. And it's the F-150 production assembly factory. And you get to walk on a catwalk all over the assembly line. And if you like factories, if you are interested in how things are made, man, this is a tour for you. It is the best factory tour I've ever seen. I've been on a lot of them. The, the, the work they're doing is stunning. It's fascinating. The robots are cool. The human beings are even cooler. Just watching, you mean you're, these poor people are being watched by all these tourists, but just watching them at work and, and watching the assembly line go is amazing. I don't know why there aren't more tours like this. It is, have you been on that? Channel? I haven't been on the Ford one. I went, uh, I've, like you've done a lot of tours usually with candidates, and I went to one at a GM plant, and it was the same thing. They had they found me like you know totally separated from the group, just watching uh, it, these uh, cars be put together. And the amazing, it's just so fascinating and kind of uplifting to watch somebody engaged in purposeful movement that's complex that that leads to a easily viewable goal. It just I don't know. It affirms a lot of things for me. It was it's great, and they also the good. The guides who are there are amazing, too, because there are a lot of XGM employees, and they're just sitting around on the catwalks, and they're there to answer questions, and totally fascinating people. All right, let's do the credits. President Jones, distinguished faculty, honored guests, alumni, parents, relatives, friends, and most of all, the class of 2014. I'm honored to be asked to celebrate your extraordinary accomplishments and send you off into the world with a few stray scraps of wisdom I've gathered over the years. Today is not an ending. Today is a beginning. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. And what better to do on that day than visit our show page, slate.com slash gabfest, where you'll see links to what we talked about today. An old Native American proverb begins, dare to dream. I say dare to dream and dare to email us at gabfest at slate.com. Dare to follow us on Twitter at, gab, at slategabfest. Dare to visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash gabfest. I come before you today with only one piece of advice. Question everything. Ask yourself, for example, why am I subscribing to mediocre, second-rate podcasts when I could go to the iTunes store and subscribe to the Slate Political Gab Fest? And then ask yourself, should I leave a comment or a rating while I'm there? If there's anything I've learned in my 44 years on this great spinning globe, it is believe in yourself. Believe in yourself like Mike Volo, who was born with no ears, yet turned himself into the greatest podcast producer of our time. Believe in yourself like fill-in producer Alexis Diao, who leaped in to step in for Volo when he came down with stomach flu. Believe in yourself like intern Rebecca Cohen, who believed in herself so much she's landed a full-time job in journalism, and thus we need another intern, so please email us with your intern application. Believe in yourself like Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcast, who has laughed out of the offices of the 23 venture capital companies he visited, but wouldn't give up on his dream of building the most powerful podcasting empire the world has ever known. As you go out into this world, no longer students, but graduates, remember 
follow your dreams, pursue your passions, be true to yourself, trust your instincts. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll be back next week. Thank you.